Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Sanjay. A quick word about my voice. You may notice that it's a bit hoarse lately. I suffer from spring allergies like everyone else. I'm doing okay, but you can definitely hear the little raspiness. So if you have any suggestions for me, the doctor, please send them along. I feel fine. I don't have COVID. Just wanted you to be aware. Hi, Sunday. My name is Joe Berlanga. I am a second grade teacher. I've been teaching for 17 years, and I have pretty extreme social anxiety. I just will do everything I can to not be in a group setting. And so I've noticed that as I've gotten older, it's progressively gotten worse. We got this voicemail in response to a recent call-out. Joe is a listener from Arkansas. And despite her anxiety, she was actually named Teacher of the Year in her school district in 2018. We were really moved by her story, so we gave her a call back to learn more about her experiences with social anxiety. You wouldn't think it at all just because I'm around kids all day and I'm kind of forced to just mingle and mix and communicate and socialize. Most of us do feel nervous in social settings from time to time. But for Joe, it goes way beyond that. Definitely my heart is racing. My whole body is hot. My thoughts are not straight. I cannot speak clearly. Yeah, it's all of just my nerves. I mean, they're just going full throttle and I don't know, you know, how to contain it or calm it down. I just try to breathe through it. But the funny thing is this. When she's in front of her second grade students... I'm normal. I show up every day. I come in. The kids are familiar with a routine. I'm used to a routine. And so everything is pretty normal and calm and consistent. She feels at ease, more like her bubbly self. I think the kids are just so non... Like, they're just so not judgmental. They don't care. They love you no matter what. When they walk into room 304, they're just happy to be here and to see Miss Berlanga here. And, you know, she's ready to dance and jump around and teach. Joe's fear only kicks in when she's faced with big groups of adults. I think that whenever I'm with a group of peers, colleagues, or in a team meeting, I may seem like I'm calm, but inside, just internally, I cannot get my thoughts straight. For many of you, Joe's experience may sound familiar. So on today's show, we're going to explore the root causes of social anxiety and how it affects the brain. Plus, steps we can take to shift that self-doubt into something positive. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and it's time to start chasing life. I'm finally actually finishing my bachelor's degree after being in school for 10 years because I had to overcome a lot of social anxiety to get there. 
Within the pandemic, I was pretty isolated. I'm making my way out in the world, but I'm very aware of where I feel uh, socially anxious. When I tried to have presentations, I would just slip up everywhere and I would pause every second or two to regather my thoughts. As Wednesday or Thursday rolls around and I look at Friday, Saturday, Sunday plans, if there's multiple events planned, I have had really bad anxiety about it. At the end of the weekend, I always end up having fun and I'm not sure why I have anxiety beforehand. Social anxiety affects 15 million Americans, and it is the third most common mental health disorder in the country. That's according to the NIH. But what actually is it? Social anxiety, most generally, is a disproportionate fear of being judged or rejected. That's Alan Hendrickson, a clinical psychologist at Boston University's Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. She says some degree of social anxiety is actually pretty normal but it can also be a serious clinical disorder if it meets certain criteria. There are two thresholds. One is distress, and that essentially means that we're suffering. So, for example, if we lose sleep or we get stomach aches because we're so anxious, then that's distress. It means we're suffering. The other threshold is impairment, and that means we're not living the life we want to live. So my classic example is a student who deliberately foregoes part of their grade because they're not willing to raise their hand and get those class participation points. As a psychologist, Professor Hendrickson understands the toll social anxiety can take on her patient's mental health. That's part of what inspired her to write a book. It's called How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic, and Rise Above Social Anxiety. So How to Be Yourself is based off of the advice that a lot of socially anxious people will get when they're feeling nervous or, you know, anticipating a social interaction. And it's infuriating because it's as if we had not thought of that before, or it's (laughs) as if we could flip a switch and just toggle into being ourselves and being comfortable and being confident. But at the same time, Being genuine, being authentic really is uh, the best way to connect and to create a positive feedback loop of less anxiety and more connection. It's interesting. As you were describing that, I was thinking, you know, guilty as charged. I, I probably have said that myself to people, including my own children. Just be yourself. And of course, when I'm saying it, I think I'm saying it as a compliment, right? If you're just yourself, you'll be fine because the qualities are there. But it can be infuriating. I'm curious, what was the impetus for you? Why did you decide to to get into this area of expertise? Why did you decide to write this book? So a lot of people will come into the mental health field through what I call the front door. You know, they want to study or treat what they themselves have suffered through. And I really came in the side door or the back door because it really wasn't until grad school when I was learning how to diagnose and treat social anxiety that I really felt like there had been a mirror held up. And Mm. the more I learned about social anxiety, the more I recognized. And I had this moment after moment of realizing like, oh, that's what was happening in high school when I would not raise my hand, even if I knew the answer, because I didn't want to see all those faces swiveling towards me. So there had been just like time after time of realizing, oh, that's what that was. And so as I 
pivoted throughout my career. I started in health psychology, but then gradually found my way into anxiety, specifically social anxiety. And I realized, oh, these are my people. <laughs> I recognize this. In your book, you, you basically say that social anxiety is sort of self-consciousness on steroids. We all, I guess all humans to some degree, have some degree of self-consciousness, right? I mean, I guess it's natural. But the idea that it starts to impair your life, that you're not spending time with people that you would otherwise normally spend time with, is that the point that someone would come see someone like you? Yeah, 99% of us can identify with a socially anxious moment. We've all had that moment where we you know, kind of feel the heat start to rise or feel the urge to hide or to cover. 40% of us identify as shy, which is just the colloquial way of saying socially anxious. So that's a lot of people. That's almost half of us. And then uh, in the U.S., at least 13% of us at some point in life will be able to be diagnosed with social anxiety disorder, meaning that we've met that threshold of distress or impairment. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I think that's sort of the interesting thing. I mean, you know, sh being shy, being introverted. When I talk about this with people, even in preparation for this podcast, I mean, so many people sort of said, yeah, you know, that that's me. I'm I'm that way. And some of these are folks in television presenting themselves to large audiences, and yet at the same time, they describe themselves as shy or introverted. For, for a lot of people, that sounds like cognitive dissonance about that, but both things can be true at the same time, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. So introversion and social anxiety are, are different. Like Social anxiety might seem like the extreme end of the introversion scale, but really, you can absolutely be a socially anxious extrovert. You might really want to go hang out with your colleagues after work, but worry that they don't really want you there. You might want to perform your music or your stand-up comedy, but worry that the audience is going to hate you. So that's a, an exquisitely difficult place to be because extroverts get their energy from social interaction and from social stimulation. And so when you have to choose between those things, you end up either sluggish and bored or scared. I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk me through the symptoms of social anxiety. What happens? Paint a scenario for me for someone who, who's dealing with social anxiety, physiologically what's happening to them emotionally. Absolutely. So all emotions, you know, have a physical fingerprint. So, you know, sadness feels heavy, feels kind of slow. Anger feels very activating, you know, feels kind of like bared teeth, bared claws. Mm. And social anxiety feels closest to shame. It feels like an urge to hide. I know when I get anxious, my hands get really cold. I get a little breathless. I can feel my heart racing. Um, my mouth goes dry. Um, and, you know, just you know, again, I mentioned my my own symptoms, like people can have a huge, many different constellations of symptoms there. So, you know, what I experience is not necessarily what someone else experiences. I, you know, it's it's interesting because, again, sometimes I find with people who have social anxiety that the perception of them is that they are aloof, that they are arrogant. Mm. Right. That's mm -hmm. the perception. Mm -hmm. in, in fact, when they may yes. be feeling anxious the perception that other people have of them is that they're disengaged. They just don't really care, which is really unfortunate, I find. What you're describing is the result of safety behaviors, which are these little behaviors that we engage in when we're feeling socially anxious to try to save ourselves, to try to keep ourselves safe. But the cruel irony is that they often end up 
backfiring and sending the wrong message. So for instance, um, safety behaviors could include like only asking questions when we're having a conversation. People with social anxiety often want to keep their lives pretty close to the vest. And so we've all been given the advice, just ask questions. People love to talk about themselves. So ask right. questions. But then if we over rely on that, it can leave our conversation partner feeling interrogated. But yes, absolutely. Uh, a lot of people with social anxiety will come across as cold or aloof when really they're just scared. So yeah, you're right on. That's really, it's, it's really fascinating. I mean, what, what, is, what is happening in the brain of someone who is, who is socially anxious? The two main players there, you know, may sound familiar. It's the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. So the amygdala, I think, often gets oversimplified um, as like the fear center. Um, and so it's, it's definitely, as you know, part of the fear center, but it's kind of the little black dress of our brain. It can do <laughs> lots of things, you know. Um, <laughs> That's funny. I hadn't heard it described that way, but <laughs> sure. I will use that. <laughs> sure, yeah. So when we encounter a threat, for someone with social anxiety, that threat sensor, the amygdala, might be calibrated like just a little too sensitively. Now, you know, a non-socially anxious brain, the prefrontal cortex, you know, which is if you put your hand on your forehead like you're checking for a fever, it's, it's what's right behind there, that can uh, shut down the amygdala's freakouts. So the classic example, which I, I use in my book, is if we text a friend and then nothing, they, they don't text us back, our amygdala might say, she hates me. And our prefrontal cortex can kind of logic it down and say, you yeah, know, she's probably in a meeting. She's probably busy. She'll get back to you soon. It's fine. Now, the socially anxious brain can also do that, but both the magnitude and the speed of the response is slower. The analogy I use is that in a you know, non-socially anxious brain, the prefrontal cortex dispatches a fire truck to the scene of the alarm whereas the socially anxious brain dispatches a guy on a bicycle with a bucket of water. It's slower and less effective. That's really interesting. Is there a benefit to social anxiety? Maybe that sounds like a silly question, but I think just from a human evolutionary standpoint, maybe we had to be somewhat suspicious of each other or, you know, whatever it may be, until proven otherwise, everything was a threat. That's how we evolved initially, maybe as human beings. Is this sort of a, a hangover trait from the earliest days of, of human evolution? Yeah, you're spot on. You know, we are social animals and we evolved to be part of a tribe or part of a group. And, you know, back in the day when we had to, you know, bond together to you know get food or create shelter. Um, it was re really important that we stayed in the good graces of the group, uh, being you know cast out in the wilderness, being banished, you know being rejected from the group basically meant certain death. So we have absolutely evolved to try to you know check ourselves to make sure that we get along with others and don't end up you know being thrown to the wolves. Today, you know, certainly that's updated. We don't necessarily rely on each other in the same way for food or shelter, but even the most introverted of introverts still needs love, community, and belonging. You know, I have to share a story. My middle daughter was having her birthday, and my wife decided to throw a surprise birthday party for her. Now, when she mentioned this to me, my wife mentioned this to me, I, you know, kind of had a little spidey sense go up thinking, I don't know if 
that makes the most sense, but I didn't, I didn't get in the way of it. So the whole plan was that my wife and my daughter's friends, they were all going to be at this little outdoor park area. And I was to then drive my, my daughters there under some, some guys. When we pulled into the area, she saw this sort of unfolding from the car window. And what do you think happened? She started to get upset. She started to hyperventilate a lot of it and like, daddy, what, what, what's happening here? You know, it, she was scared, mm, mm-hmm. but here's the thing. It, that did not surprise me that much because I, I tried to put myself in her shoes and thinking, yeah, I probably wouldn't be the kind of person that would enjoy mm. that either. It gets at this issue, like how much of this is nature versus nurture? Did my daughter get this from me? How do you, how do you determine the root causes here? Sure. Yeah. I think A, you know, don't blame yourself. Uh, B, so in terms of the root causes of social anxiety, there's a lot of pieces to that pizza. So some of it is genetics. If we have a first degree relative, so a parent, a sibling, a child with social anxiety, we are six to eight times as likely to also have that same disorder as social anxiety as compared to somebody who doesn't have a first degree relative with social anxiety. Sometimes a piece of the pizza can be social trauma, like getting bullied or social betrayal, getting ghosted by your friend group. I think it's no accident that most people, if they have diagnosable social anxiety, can trace it back between the ages of eight and 15 is when it usually gets started. So like late elementary school, Interesting. all the way through like early high school. So lots of lots of pieces to that pizza. How have we done through the pandemic? Has this amplified the problem? Oh, yes. How much time do we have? So uh, <laughs> yeah, so the pandemic has, you know, really been a doozy for social anxiety because we were all for good reason, avoiding normal social life, you know, for upwards of two years, our brain, you know, looks at our behavior and reasons that if we're avoiding that, that must be for a reason, that must be dangerous. So when we try to go the other way and and re-enter normal social life, we're not only going to feel a little rusty, we also have to work against our brain, which has now habituated to staying away from other people. And then I think there is just objectively more to navigate now. We wonder like, okay, well, you know, do I wear my mask now? Do I take it off now? Do we shake hands? Do we hug? How does this work? Anxiety is driven by uncertainty. So if we don't know the rules of the road, of course, we're going to feel anxious. I think most of us can relate to those feelings of uncertainty as we navigate this latest phase of the pandemic. But if you are looking to sharpen your social skills... You're in luck. After the break, Professor Hendrickson's going to tell all of us how she helps manage her own patients' social anxiety. In the name of you know, social anxiety treatment, I've spilled my coffee in a crowded Starbucks. I have asked for lemongrass in a hardware store. Like I've gone jogging with clients. Plus tips for supporting others in your life with social anxiety. But first, I want your help with something. I'm working on another episode all about the ways that our brains respond to nature. If nature has played a positive role in your mental or physical health, we'd love to hear from you. Record a voice memo, email it to asksanjay at cnn.com, or give us a call at 470-396-0832 and leave a message. And now back to Chasing Life 
and more of my conversation with clinical psychologist Ellen Hendrickson. Let's spend a minute just talking about treatment then. Someone has come to see you and you've diagnosed the individual with social anxiety. What are the, the various options in terms of treatments? So I do cognitive behavioral therapy, which posits that if we can challenge the way we think and change the way we act, then that will change the way we feel. So what we will usually do is to create this gigantic list of all the things that the person wants to do but is avoiding. And then we rank it from easiest to hardest and work our way through. And so I will do a lot of these things alongside my clients. And so, you know, in the name of, you know, social anxiety treatment, I've done some, you know, interesting things. I've spilled my coffee in a crowded Starbucks. I have asked for lemongrass in a hardware store. Like I've gone jogging with clients. We will do a lot of things that for whatever reason they, you know, are are worried about doing. And so we will work our way through. Um, So that's the behavioral aspect. And we'll also challenge thoughts and beliefs, like people are going to reject me if I don't present like really perfectly. Do we really have to be articulate and funny and, uh, you know, not awkward um, in order to be accepted? No, there's probably some wiggle room there. So trying to challenge the beliefs that really maintain social anxiety, as well as trying to face our fears is really this magical one-two punch that can really work wonders for folks who have lived with social anxiety for a long time. That's sort of the the cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Yes. And then you also talk about mindfulness-based stress reduction as well, right? Is Is that another option? Generally, there are two big buckets of treatment options. So one bucket is change. And so what I described with cognitive behavioral therapy squarely falls into that bucket. We're trying to change thoughts. We're trying to change behaviors. But there's this whole other bucket called acceptance. And there, that is where mindfulness falls in because all these thoughts that we're having of that, you know, people are going to think I'm a loser or people are going to think I'm awkward or like, I'm not any good at this. Those are just thoughts, right? Those like thoughts aren't truth, but we can train ourselves to observe those thoughts as they, you know, come flying at us. We can learn to just recognize, oh, this is what my brain does. These are the things my inner critic throws at me, but we don't have to react to those things. And we can still, you know, be friendly and open and start conversations, even though those thoughts are there. And what about exposure therapy or immersion in this? Is that a good idea to immerse? So I'm of the school that slow and steady wins the race. So I am more of the person who encourages clients to dip their toe into the pool and kind of inch their way in as opposed to doing a cannonball into the deep end. That can work. It's certainly, you know, more painful. But I think regardless, exposure therapy should be exactly that. Should You should expose yourself to your fears, face your fears, try to drop those safety behaviors. But at the same time, go at your own pace. Be kind to yourself. Again, this is such a personal topic for me because of, you know, I'm raising three teenage girls. But if you see someone in your life, a friend, coworker, family member, and you think that they may have some of these traits that you're describing, they are socially anxious. Is it best to approach them, to ask them about it, to intervene in some way or, or not? 
our urge is often to accommodate them, to say, oh, well, okay, well, you don't have to do that. Or, well, okay, maybe we'll think in our heads, well, I won't invite you to my next party because I know you would hate that. However, there is a fine line between accommodating and enabling. And so I would say to talk to them and say, you know, how can I support you? How can I um, encourage you if you can sense that they're feeling anxious before an event or you're about to go out, you can say, well, remember, you know, last time, like you were nervous, but then after 10 minutes, you really settled in. Or I remember, you know, last time you wanted to bail also, but you were really glad you went at the end of the day. You can be their champion and remind them that they can do hard things as opposed to, you know, accommodating to the point of enabling. I think there's a little bit of both that are appropriate. Encourage them, be their champion and allow them, you know, an escape hatch. Absolutely. You don't want to hold their feet to the fire. If you're someone who lives with social anxiety, it's important to remind yourself there's a lot of people just like you out there and that there is something you can do about it. So we decided to give you some tips today from Professor Hendrickson to help us manage our social anxiety and feel more comfortable at any sort of get-together. Tip number one, If you're in the grip of anxiety during a social interaction, turn your attention outward. Pay attention to the person you're talking to, look at their face, listen to their words, and essentially turn that spotlight outward. It makes it easier to connect, and it, in addition, makes you come across as more attentive, more genuine, more authentic, and you have more bandwidth to pay attention to the moment. Tip number two. Next time you go to an event, make a game plan ahead of time. You can say you're going to talk to a certain number of people. You're going to appoint yourself as the the unofficial photographer. You can ask people to sign the guest book, etc. Give yourself a role, and that will give you more certainty. Tip three, don't put off facing your fears. We often feel like we want to retreat from the world and work on ourselves and then emerge newly confident and ready to take on the world. But instead, switch those. Put action first. Do the things that you're afraid of kindly, slowly, and your confidence will catch up. Tip four, resist the urge to be perfect. Allow yourself some wiggle room to make mistakes, to have an awkward pause here or there, to trip over your words. Social relationships don't hinge on the last conversation. So it's okay to lower the bar and to focus on connection rather than your performance. And finally, I think it's only fitting that our last tip comes from second grade teacher Joe Berlanga, who we heard from earlier. I do a lot, a lot of just deep breathing, and I try to get my attention, my mind away from what is coming or what's going to happen, but um, when you're there, you're there. That is a great tip. It might actually seem obvious, but simply taking a few deep breaths really calms what is known as our parasympathetic nervous system. That controls the body's ability to relax. Try it yourself. It works almost immediately. Now, these tips may not completely erase social anxiety, but they can help calm our nerves, especially when they're in overdrive. Think of these tips like additions to your mental checklist when you head out the door. Phone? Check. Keys? Check. Resist the urge to be perfect? Check. Now, that last one may be a bit harder for some of us to actually check off the list, 
But as Professor Hendrickson said, we need to stop putting so much thought into every social interaction. It is way too much pressure. Instead, let's focus on making genuine connections and giving ourselves a little grace. I've already started putting some of these tips into action, and I can tell you that my interactions with people are more joyous and they're more genuine as well. Sometimes we just let our own minds get in the way. It's a question of trying to be as present as possible. And sometimes that can really help alleviate social anxiety. And if you've found some good strategies of your own to help manage social anxiety, I'd love to hear from you. Also, what did you learn from today's episode and how are you planning to put it into action? Record your thoughts as a voice memo, email them to asksanjay at cnn.com or give us a call at 470-396-0832 and leave a message. We might even include them on an upcoming episode of the podcast. And we'll be back next week with an episode all about how language shapes the brain. You won't want to miss it. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is executive producer. Zoe Saunders is the senior producer. Our podcast is produced by Jordan Gaspore, Emily Liu, Xavier Lopez, Isuke Samuel, and Grace Walker. Our production assistant is Allison Park. Our intern is Eduardo Ocampo. Our medical writer, Andrea Kane. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. And a special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seeley of CNN Health, as well as Ashley Lusk, Rafina Ahmad, and Courtney Coop from CNN Audio. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.